Broadcasting from Orchard Park, New York, and Boca Raton, Florida, it's the Freight 360 Podcast. From freight broker sales tips to sports talk, this podcast is all about helping you grow as a freight broker. We're your hosts, Nate Cross and Benjamin Kowalski. Let's talk freight. Welcome back, everyone, to episode 123 of the Freight 360 Podcast. It is mid-January here. We're heading into football playoffs. We'll get to that in a second. But hey, if you're brand new here, glad you found us. Welcome to Freight 360. If you've been with us for a while, welcome back. Make sure to check out all the other episodes in our library. Hit that subscribe button on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you're listening to us. New episodes every Friday morning at uh, 12 a.m. Eastern time. That's midnight. So you West Coasters get a little uh, sneak peek before midnight. Um, and share us with all your friends, obviously. We got a growing community here. Today's episode, we're going to be digging into the market, essentially. We've got Ken Adamo back with us from DAT. Ken, welcome back, man. It's been a while. Yeah, thanks for having me. As you mentioned in the green room, it's been over a year, right? 13 months. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was December 2020. So we were talking. And I didn't. I should have went back and listened to it because it's kind of like re-reading your New Year's resolutions or goals. Yeah, don't <laughs> you do that. Either had just, no just like no, that I was episode. Yeah. Wrong. Yeah. Record over well, hey, that episode. Yeah, we Ben and I always joke about it, right? If you're like an economist or a meteorologist, Mother, you can always be wrong and have your job. So I guess the same thing goes in freight analytics. But. Um, it's been a hell of a year, 2021, and even into this year. So we'll, we'll get into all that in a little bit here and try to unpack the, the dumpster fire that has been going on and try to give some more guesses at what this year is going to uh, you know, unhold. So, But uh, first, a little sports recap. Um, Ken, you and Ben both, if I remember correctly, Yinzers, right? Pittsburgh. Oh, uh, yeah. 4-1-2. Type, yeah. So... I mean that's that's my my highlight is that the Steelers somehow managed to slide into the seventh spot and it, you know what blew my mind was that the um, Chargers Raiders game almost ended in a tie and yeah. I was like I can't imagine how tight Big Ben's butthole was at that point just waiting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I, I can't if that would have ended in a tie you would never be able to placate the conspiracy theorists at that point never. That's a good You're point. right. Yeah, I, I uh, crazy, this though. is the worst. I mean, you got to give credit to Mike Tomlin, right? I mean, I, I was listening. I still listen to Pittsburgh sports talk radio. DV, my morning. And uh, I mean, he, he's he's not had a losing season when they had Duck Hodges, Tommy Gunn, you know. I, I completely I forgot about Patch. that. There wasn't a losing yeah. season when they had Tommy Maddox. I mean, he was still on the roster when Tomlin took over. I think Tommy Gunn's early days was still Cowher, yeah. right? Because he came in yep. with Ben, won the Super Bowl. But I think Tommy was still on the roster. They had Charlie Batch for all those years. Yeah. Still never a losing season. And to fall backwards into the playoffs this year, I think it's just incredible. What did they finish out? Was it 8-8-1? Eight, 8-7-1. Eight and one? Eight, seven, and one. Eight, seven, and one. No, wait, 9-7-1. It has to be 8-8-1, eight, eight right? Or 9-7-1. 8-8-1, oh, eight, eight, I guess. I have no idea. Seventeen games, so yeah, maybe eight, eight, and one. Let me look at it right now. Nine, seven, and one. There you go. Okay. Yep. Slid in there. So it's it's kind of like that uh, that tie somehow worked out in your favor. Like you know, when people end the ties, like man, it's gonna screw us. Worked out in your favor, not being a loss. So hey, anyway, that was the Lions too, right? I mean, if you think about the games we would have squandered, yeah, it was a mess. What do you think about your Bills? Well, I, I keep thinking back to week one that when the Steelers beat the Bills. So I, I think I have a little bit of um, 
we had a part in your success in the playoffs, so you're welcome, I guess. But uh, really appreciated, man. So this is the thing with Buffalo with Sean McDermott as the head coach. Every every year, I think it's like four years now. Uh, they look back, and he tends to have a strong start, a strong finish, and then just a disaster throughout the middle of the season. And that's exactly what happened this year. The Bills, they were going like win, loss, win, loss, loss, win, loss. And it's like, geez. And they finally broke out of it, finished off like four straight wins or whatever it was, um, sealed or clinched the playoffs in, in week 17, and then just in last week in week 18, uh, clinched the um, division. They actually clinched the division by my or by New England losing to Miami about three minutes before we won over the uh, Jets. So, um, but either way, I'm excited, man. Bill, Bills will be hosting Saturday night here in Orchard Park. We'll be hosting uh, New England. So third third uh, game against them this year. I'll be at the game. I went to the Monday night game where they lost. Um, I went to the Monday night Titans game in Tennessee where they lost. So I'm hoping that this nighttime game I can see a victory this year. Um, but I'm rooting for Steelers too, man. I want you guys to take down Kansas City so Pat Mahomes does not have to host the Bills potentially in the in the divisional round. So I hope for you if you hope for us. Even getting one win would be a great way to send, send Ben off. Exactly. We'll hopefully be able to return the favor. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, well, good stuff. So, playoff football. It's its finally that time of year. Uh, ben, on another sports-related note, my ice rink is partially complete. I've realized that there's a lot more. So, Ken, you probably don't know. I built a backyard ice rink. But the issue I ran into is my ground is not level. And um, when I'm, I'm, I built up like boards and like put a liner in and I filled it up. I realized that I don't have it tall enough on the low end of my yard. Uh, so I filled it all the way up to the top and it's like the upper corner is still dry. So I have to build it up higher later today and uh, um, put some more water in there. But it's actually, it went from like one degrees the other day to like it's 36 today. So it's above freezing. I'm not gonna do any, any uh, flooding on the rink until you know maybe this weekend or something like that but your little one oh, have skates what's that does your little one have the two little skates no no so um they said to try that next year because he's only two or he's not two yet he'll be two in a few months but we got him or he got for christmas like one of those like metal things that they can hold on to and slide around to kind of like hold them up that's exactly what i was going to say there's an ice rink that they have at palm beach of all places where and that's exactly what they have for the little kids it's like a pvc it looks like a tiny little goal um like yeah Yeah, and then they just like kind of like waddle around or push themselves around yeah i mean at least it'll give them some familiarization i guess who knows get them used to being on skates and just or just standing there and being that's gonna be awesome yep so we'll see. Um, any other anything else in Oh, I got something on sports. Online mobile sports betting launched in New York State literally Saturday morning this past weekend. And like between DraftKings, FanDuel, Caesars, um, they're all throwing out like left and right ridiculous like amounts of free bets and like gimme bets. Like there were like even money if either team scores a touchdown in a bunch of games and like I don't know. I cleaned up. I did pretty good. But some dude just bet a quarter million dollars on the Bills to win the Super Bowl at like eight to one odds. So he'll, he'll win back like two and a quarter million dollars. It was all over Twitter. But um, yeah, Bills Mafia and New York sports bettors, the, the true degenerates in us is really starting to show. So hmm. it's just it's one way to pay your taxes to New York State, I guess. So New York State is taking a 51% tax on all profits generated by their eight gaming partners that they authorized so not a bad deal 
Yeah. They legalized pot last year and now online sports betting. We're just, uh, we're making tax dollars left and right here in New York State. So good stuff. That's- All right. Let's get into the content, the uh, the market. So, Ken, I guess um, first, what the hell's going on right now in the freight market? I mean, so let, let's back up. We we all thought, oh, by mid twenty twenty one, like stuff will normalize, right? The pandemic will be over, the capacity crisis will be gone, and rates will kind of be back to like you know the normal ebb and flow of the eighteen ish month normal market cycle. So mm-hmm. that didn't happen. What, what are we seeing right now? just in general. So right now we're still in that return window post holiday, right? It really runs through the second or even third week of January, given the way e-commerce and the way that brick and mortar is adapted to uh, e-commerce. So, you know, things are, are, are slowing down a bit on the demand side, on the capacity side. Look, I mean, there's probably a lot of truck drivers down with Ben in Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, at this time of the year, right? They had great years. Truck, trucking companies make on a good year, five to 7% operating profits, right? They probably made 15 to 20% this past year. They ran their tails off late Q4. A lot of them have taken some much needed time off to R&R. There's been some weather. Um, there's some regulatory things up in the air, right? With the Supreme Court and uh, vax and vaccination among drivers. So I think we're seeing a bit of a, a dip in the total number of trucks out there so total rates have fallen sure you know since christmas since that that crazy peak but they're probably still a little bit higher than we would have expected seasonally just because capacity is still not very fluid let me ask you something today to that point on the actual like demand not the demand side but on the supply side of just products coming in um and i know this is a little outside of full truckload but the amount of imports coming in which is really hard for me to find data on and i'm just really curious what has been going on over the past two three months with like actual cargo coming in right the ships off the off the coast of california like is this product slowing down coming in? Because like I've heard anecdotally from a lot of like intermodal drivers that like COVID is slowing the railroads from loading containers and like the volume just coming into the ports has slowed down like into the actual US. But yet there's just this huge backlog still there. Are you seeing any changes or what are you guys seeing with like the imports coming in the United States? No, I mean, you continue to see, you know, we just pulled these stats this morning. so. You know, we are a, a partner with Journal of Commerce. We, um, we we rely heavily on the peers data set that they have that tracks uh, TEU volumes coming in to all the domestic ports. And, you know, there's still vessels parked out there, right? The average day at anchor as of this morning is 17.6 days. Still quite a significant backlog um, off of LAX, right? That San Pedro Bay area. There was one vessel, Pinocchio, that's been sitting out there for 58 days. Is it really called Pinocchio? Yeah, Pinocchio. <laughs> um, 58 days. Um, and as of right now, uh, and again, this is coming from Dean Croak using the Pierce data set, uh, 1.18 million TEUs on the 130, 103 vessels queued to unload. So, I mean, what we're seeing, right, is, you know, these volumes coming in, Omicron's hitting. Um, there's another interesting stat. Um, I think 10% of port workers uh, in the LA kind of apparatus, like the port apparatus, if you will, like the greater port apparatus are stricken right now with COVID um, due to Omicron. So, you know, the throughput 
like the hose is still narrow. The the, the, the the hose that the water comes through is still narrow, right? If, if imports are water, the, the, the port capacities are hose. The hose is still constricted. Um, you know, we haven't seen this flip to 24-hour port operations because there's no such thing as a magical flip to 24-hour port operations. You don't just leave the gate open 24 hours and then your crane operators, your dolly operators, your container um, inspection, your customs clearance, all of that stuff needs to go 24 hours. So, yeah, I think imports are going to continue to be a story. My my anticipation is that will slow into the first and second quarter as things catch up. So, I mean, but ultimately, what's driving that is 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 consumer demand. Is that what it comes down to? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 demand for the stuff in those containers. Low again, inventory levels. Inventory ball. levels still. If you had a magic ball, I don't know that you'd be able to quantify, and you could quantify the total demand for stuff, right, pre and post pandemic. I don't know that that would overall be net positive, but it's the types of stuff being demanded, where it's being demanded, and the ability to get it there that's kind of messing with stuff, right? You have this inventory mismatch. You're seeing it all over, right? Like Trek bicycles is an interesting case study where they have, normally they might have 10 different models if you want like a cyclocross bike. They might now only have three because they share very common parts and they know that they can build them and stock those SKUs. So they might still have 30 bikes, but instead of having three each of 10 varieties, they might have 10 each of three varieties. Interesting. So they're even changing what they're, they're lowering the amount of SKUs because they only have a certain amount of parts. And I guess they're you know exactly. optimizing the SKUs they have the highest profit margin on or they're able to move the most units with. And minimizing their input risk, right? They're, they're minimizing mm-hmm. their risk that they're gonna have the production line outage or Worst case, a ton of whip sitting at their distribution warehouse waiting to be completed. You know, other, are, other question along that same end of the hose side is, what are we seeing on the um, like computer chip side with the vehicles? You think that's going to pick up this year to be able to, because I talked to a few drivers that were saying they were only like a, like a reasonable amount of time for a new truck now. I think it was like four or five months where, you know, it was well out over a year, the middle of last year. What are you guys, what are your thoughts on like actual capacity coming back to the market this year? I mean, that, that feedback you heard is rare, right? I mean, I think if, if he must have a, if, if word got out that that dealer or what that OEM was able to make that happen in that market, I think that would go away. That would be arbitraged away pretty quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. The big story last week or the week before was class A truck orders sort of went, like lost some ground. But when they interviewed the OEMs, they said, yeah, it's because we canceled a whole bunch of orders. We know we can't deliver. You also have like yeah, this model year gotcha. thing. And this is going to be a story, I think, whenever consumer vehicles catch up Think of all like those pictures you saw of like the Ford F-150 sitting down in Kentucky, the 2021 mm-hmm. model year waiting for chips. Well, when they get the chips, yep. that there's there's a process, right, to, to re-in, retitle those potentially as 2022 model years. And there's just some considerations around how do you lease those incentives. So these automakers are going to have to start thinking about, and you're already starting to see it on the commercial vehicle side, you know, model year considerations. They're building out their 2022 books. I, I do think in 22, it'll be easier to get a truck. One of the key indicators of that is when trucking companies start canceling their orders, right? When they're like, yeah. hey, I ordered 100. I've been waiting. I've been waiting. I've been waiting. The market shifted a bit. I only need 80. So that's like going to be the bellwether for when things are going to start to turn is when you start to see a little bit of pessimism in the in the trucking company's orders. What they're willing to make the long-term bets on. Right. And the interest rates hesitancy. are a huge unknown, right? The, the most terrifying number to young professionals such as us should have been this morning, 7% inflation year over year, right? So the government, yeah. the Fed is going to, I mean, it's not if and it's when, they're going to intervene to raise rates. And then 
housing becomes a lot less affordable. A truck certainly becomes a lot less affordable, but they're going to have to quell inflation somehow. And as far as I know, the only mechanism they really have for that is to raise interest rates. So you're telling me that my my 18 month ish house hunt that I've been on, I need to bring that to an end and buy a house ASAP. (laughs) I would. I'm glad I refinanced. I just built a giant garage outside my house. I'm dying happy here. There you go. I dig it. Well, I'm selling a I'm selling a rental in the next week or two, and hopefully uh, that'll be a good return. Uh, bought it obviously before everything started to go way up, and getting rid of it before interest rates go up potentially, or I guess when they do go up. So that's crazy, man. It's, yeah, Dean and so I talk wild. about this all the time, right? How many truckers do you know are buying their rigs in cash? Oh, I, yeah. I probably less than ten percent, less than five percent. Most of right? them have such poor kind of financial standing that they're being forced to make bi-weekly truck payments, truck and insurance payments, right? Mm-hmm. So these aren't like people, I mean, these are people who, you know, they're not paying prime plus 1%, right? They're paying 10, 11, 12, 13% for their truck on bi-weekly payments. And if the prime rate goes up even, even 50, 60 basis points, which is not very much, that wouldn't impact me or you very much buying a car. They could be in a pinch. It might make them unprofitable. I mean, well, yeah, when you've got like, you know, six figure price tags on a truck versus like, what's an average car go for? 35,000, something like that. So yeah, it's a, it's a lot bigger difference. So get this one. We have on our show that we do, um, a lot of truckers tune in, you know, they're, especially since we started adding Facebook, but long and short of it is, uh, this guy had a used truck, 300,000 miles on it. I think it was 170 grand for the truck and 70 grand for the trailer. Wow. And Dean was saying you could, you know, prior to all this, you could walk into a Peterbilt showroom or a Kenworth showroom and buy a decked out truck new for that. For that. Oh my God! So that's seventy grand for the trailer. Yeah, for well, a drive too, though, not even a reefer. Wow! Like I mean, Ken, you talked about what they're, what these guys were making profit you know, in the last year, fifteen, twenty percent. Like they, I think a lot of them forget that that doesn't last forever. Um, yeah. But I mean, people, they, Ben, we, we've seen it the entire year, like, you know, beginning of the week for a lot of these folks or beginning of their driving cycle, they will just drive anywhere and chase the high paying freight. Like they don't care. Right. And when we've seen, like, I was looking at DAT on rate view earlier. And even like this year alone, it's like average van rate went from like, this is nationwide, went from like 230 up to like, I don't know, three, over $3 a mile. Uh, in the last 12 months. So like that, that's a massive, you know, increase right there. And when costs goes up, your profits are also gonna go up at the end of the day. So especially if their margin, their profit margin is up, that's an even bigger chunk of change for their profit. Yeah. So um, I think when that constricts and, and goes back down to a, to a more level amount, that's where you're gonna see, um, you know, probably the, the cost of trucks Used trucks go down because the demand will go down. I would imagine. You're the you're the economist or you're the ana- analyst, Ken. You tell me. So it's kind of like funny thing about right like the psychology of the truck driver, right? Any small business owner, but especially these folks, right? They they're out there making these record profits, and I, they should, right? I mean, I think. But May of last year, they were campaigning in front of the White House, right? Because the rates were in the gutter. Mm-hmm. Um. I guess that's two years. That's right. Yeah. 19, yeah. But so let's put that on the table and say, look, I, I think it's just human nature to say, like, I'm less concerned with fuel prices when I'm making record. When I'm at work, and let's just say I'm a salesperson and I'm making, or I'm a broker, I'm a, I'm a commission broker and I'm landing 
big contracts left and right. I'm cleaning up on the spot market. I'm a little less concerned if my meal costs more when I go out to lunch. I'm a little less concerned if my next car payment when I, when I turn my lease in goes up. But what happens when the, the belt gets a little tight on the revenue side, I wasn't paying attention to those costs going up. And then all of a sudden, the revenues don't have to dip as much to put you in trouble. And that's what we're honestly, <laughs> that's why we've been really trying to get folks like American Truck Business Services and those folks in front of these carriers to say, look, you need to pay attention even though you don't need to pay attention. Right? Fuel might not be your number one concern right now because you're making record profits, but look, if the market falls 25% and your costs went up 25%, that's a you just wiped off your 50, you know, you just wiped off that 50% year over year profit margin that you had. Yeah. This, and so, this is a conversation that a good broker can have with their their close trusted carrier partners. Like a lot, Ben, I know you work with, you know, some smaller trucking companies that um, they're they're going to be more volatile to change like that because they're you know, typically more exposed and they're smaller. So they can't, they can't take a hit as well as a, or I guess as easily as a larger company could without feeling it as bad. Um, the other thing too is like, you know, just their intentionality behind how they're managing their, their company overall. And even like, so you brought up the fuel part and this is what kind of blew my mind is I think back like three, four years ago, when we looked at pricing and forecasting out, I was like, okay, well, what's fuel? And you try to calculate it in and it's like now, Fuel tends to like not even be a factor in all of it. It's like, okay, where's capacity at? What's what's the consumer demand at? Where can I get a truck? Um, when you see like just the line haul rates double and double or more in certain lanes at certain times of the year, like fuel becomes like the the last thing on your mind. It's wild. So and fuel has gone up. You know, here's an interesting thing that I used to it used to just drive me crazy, right? Because when I was running pricing and predictive analytics at a, a split shop, right? So fuel on the asset side was easy because it was a floating percentage, right? You got paid based, your fuel surcharge was a revenue line item, mm -hmm. but it floated with your cost, right? That's kind yeah, of how they're designed. But fuel for a broker, I mean, at least the way I'm familiar with, both in my real world experience and talking to dozens and dozens of brokers, a lot of times it's baked all in. Oh right? yeah. So a thousand dollar load when fuel is $3 a gallon is a lot different than a thousand dollar load when fuel is $4 a gallon. Yeah, I mean, the, the way that I've seen it is, um, and, and this has been for probably like four or five years, and before fuel like really, really went up, to just to, to simplify pricing, um, not just not itemize it, right? Put it a, a single all-in flat rate, and if you were contracted for a quarter or for a year and fuel went up, you made less money on that lane. But when yeah. it went down, you made more money. I mean, it's just it, just the, the fact of the matter. So um, some customers though, obviously, and people just went through bid cycles in the last couple of months, some customers will do, they'll issue out their their fuel surcharge schedule. So they'll say if fuel, if diesel costs this amount, here's the number of cents yep. you're gonna get per mile for your surcharge on it. And they'll add that in there. But still, to that point, it doesn't account, like their bid price does not account for the ridiculous peaks that we'll see in a certain week, right? In a certain mar uh, market in the US, just based on capacity, it's insane. Um, I know like if you Where look are at- Where are you guys thing, at fuel-wise anyway? Just curiosity, what's fuel per gallon there? I filled up my tank yesterday. What do you guys pay for, I don't know, premium? What is it, ballpark up there now? You guys look in the past talking, couple days or week? So I'll tell you, it's. I think I've, I filled up yesterday and it was like 360 a gallon, Whoa. 360, something like that. I'm in the flat lane, man. It just got three bucks and we were all worried because it was like 280 before Christmas. 460, I filled up yesterday. 
460 in Florida? Yeah. Oh my goodness. In fact, I, I get my gas at Costco and I had and I was like on E, I got my car washed and I got it at a regular gas station. I threw in, you know, 20 bucks to just get the Costco. It was 450 at the gas station, it was 350 at Costco. That wow. is wild. Luckily, I switched from premium to regular. I, I, I traded in my Acura and got a uh, F1. I actually got an F-150 this past summer, so I get to, oh, nice. I nice. Get to get 15 miles per gallon only buying regular instead of premium. I'm going to look this up right now. So, um, yeah, about th- about 350 is what I'm showing on Gas Buddy for Buffalo area. So Ohio gas tax is really cheap. Right across the border in Pennsylvania, it would be about 350 375 Ben, I still can't believe, like, I haven't seen $4 a gallon since, like, what was it, uh, 2012? Does that sound right? When did gas get, well, it got really cheap in, like, 08. It was, like, 2 bucks a gallon. Yeah. but I don't even remember the last time it was that expensive. Yeah. I remember, seeing... I remember when I first started driving, and it, I remember it hitting $2 a gallon, and I was like, this is disgusting. Because you're, like, you're, you're young, and you're basically, mm-hmm. like, your, your high school, like, your That's money you make is all like your, your budget money and beer money or whatever but yeah. <laughs> yeah uh now it's formula money and diaper money yeah seriously fair enough diapers and freaking kid toys and wipes that's it. Ken, let me ask you this. What are your what are your thoughts on commodities kind of going into the first quarter? You know, January, February for the spot market. Where are the opportunities for the brokers to be prospecting? <clears throat> Who's going to be needing the capacity in the short term and need it the most, do you think? I mean, I think housing's a big, a big unknown. I mean, I think interest rates, it, there, there's this impending sense if you talk to the home home construction or home remodeling industry that they're anticipating interest rates to go up. So I think they're trying to make hay while the sun's shining, trying to sign a lot of deals, lock in lumber. Uh, lumber's actually ticked back up, right? So, you know, I think the home industry is going to be something to watch closely as we head into the spring. They had a really strong spring last year. Everything from patio furniture to shutters to vinyl siding to asphalt shingles, everything had a really, really good year. And not just the retailers, not just the manufacturers, but the whole ecosystem that supported it. You talk to truck drivers, you talk to brokers, or um, other kind of three, you know, three, four PLs. They all had a really good time supporting the 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 home, the new construction and home remodeling industry. You know, depending on weather, um, produce again always starts to pick up early March in in the south, especially you know the deep southeast. Um, those will, I think, be things to watch very closely. Oil prices stay high as things begin to thaw out in the true Midwest, like the geographic upper Midwest, as you push into like the Bakken Shale region. Those are really good opportunities. Um, but again, I mean, I, I still think it's a, it's a bit of a boom that continues to the first half of the year as it pertains to retail and consumer durables and non-durables. It's still hard to get a washing machine. It's still hard to get um, a treadmill. It's hard to get um, furniture, very hard to get furniture. A lot, a lot of friends I know that have moved. Well, a lot of people did, right? Um, my cousin was been waiting on a couch for a year and a half, and they, he was going through it. It was the foam in the supply chain. He was like, "Look, you know, we talked to the manufacturers, and when everybody stopped and then they restarted, he said the furniture companies got in line behind the automotive makers, and they basically moved all of their supply chain back like three quarters. They just couldn't get any of the foam that they needed to make any of the couches." Yep, and I've seen a lot of buddies, I mean, this is more higher-end furniture, I guess, but they're getting hit with lumber surcharges on orders they've had placed for a year. Wow. And a lot of that furniture is manufactured in the Southeast, right? Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, those are all hubs for domestic furniture production. And the stuff from overseas has been one of the main culprits for being 
delayed, right? Just usually the stacking position, and I don't know why. I just know that furniture, by and large, is a commodity with a poor stacking position on um, container ships. You know, they've been hurt by the by the delays at the port. So yeah, I mean, it's 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 been a bit scattershot as it pertains to commodities because you don't know what's going to pivot, like what's going to be the next. Toilet paper's in, toilet paper's out, right? You know, it's like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I don't know what the, how to budget that. But by and large, um, you know, I, I, if, if it's in and around consumer durables and non-durables, basically anything Costco sells <laughs> when you really yeah. come down and think about it. Dean had a really good article on the uh, building material side in December, right? Where traditionally, you know, it kind of dips going into Christmas and there was just so much pent up demand all year for everything that you named, right? People putting additions on their house, doing remodel of their bathrooms. People have been stuck in their house and just spending all that equity that they pulled out when they refinanced their house right back on their house. That all of them were gaining a lot of that ground in December by trying to catch up, trying to get a lot of this lumber out, which is likely probably had something to do with lumber ticking back up again with yeah. just everybody trying to catch up when normally this is a time of year that, like you said, all the drivers, all the flat open deck drivers start moving south, <laughs> south of the Mason-Dixon line anyway. Let me ask you, so think about like the, your big box home improvement stores, right? Depot, Lowe's. Why is it that I walk in there and I'm, I don't ever have an issue buying something. Like I, I, I'm doing a little remodel on my rental right now and I had to go get flooring, had to get wood, had to get this, that, and the other thing. And it looks like the shelves are stocked. So am I am I missing something or is this a different part of the 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 supply chain or the Home Depot home improvement part that I'm I think I think Home Depot chartered their own vessel, at least a portion of one, didn't they? To try I think it was to... Schneider and Home I could be getting this totally wrong, but I thought it was Schneider and Home Depot chartered the deck of a brake bulk ship. Yeah. During peak to bring stuff over. Interesting. Okay. Um, so they they, they know, thought I, you know, I don't know. Nate, I think by and large there are these shortages. I, you might not be kind of pit, I've noticed a little bit just because I went in looking on purpose. Right, this is what Dean and I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, 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 these stores have narrowed their skews. Right, you may have had okay. you may have had three quarters inch sanded one side plywood and oak rough surface both sides and all of these different things. And now you might just have oak plywood. Right, and what they're okay. doing is they're making the shelves not look bare by. And again, pay attention next time you go, and I'd be interested to see if this is the case. They're like, the skews that they do have, they're filling multiple slots in the shelves. Okay. Like, we're seeing it with, like, light bulbs is a great example, right? There's been this interesting dynamic with getting light bulbs, because you have some of the incandescent um, sunsetting laws that went into place. Those always get busy towards the end of an old year into a new. But you're just seeing, like, a whole wall of 60-watt replacement bulbs on LED, and it's like, why do I need this entire wall of 60-watt replacement light bulbs? Whereas before they'd have all these different things, so okay. I think that's, that's part of it. That that's a good point. Okay, but and I that mean, makes sense. And to give to give you credibility on that statement, I was looking for like transition strips, molding, like little things like that, and it surprised me because when I the last time I ever had to go in and buy stuff like that was probably four or five years ago, and you, they literally had like ten options for what I wanted. And um, yesterday and today when I was in there, there was like one or two, and I was like. Man, like I gotta pick between this wood one and this metal one. I don't even like the color of the metal one. Where before there there was like five different finishes of the metal. You had plastic. You had um, you know all different kinds of the wood ones, unpainted or you know finished stain this color that color. But yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think about it like that. I don't know if you so. saw even with the Christmas decorations. I mean, you used to walk into a Home Depot and you'd have inflatable Grinches, Mickey's, Minis, uh, Goofies. 
uh, minions, all this stuff. And basically you had like Santa, Frosty. And a reindeer. And a reindeer this year. Yeah, it's like, yeah. I think they made their bets on what they thought was going to to move. And they went, I mean, it was really hard to find a fake Christmas tree this year. Like that wasn't just like a, a throwaway piece on USA Today. I had a hard time. My, my wife and kids and I went around <laughs> trying to find a fake Christmas tree because we had a baby. We didn't want to get a real one this year. And it, we had to go to like four stores before we found one that had a selection. Interesting. Um, so, and again, what you're buying at Home Depot isn't ordering pallets and pallets of lumber for a construction site. Scheduled out, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That's true. Same commodity, but it's the way that it's I got the the quantity in which it's ordered, the way that it's distributed is is different, yeah. right? So okay, that's a fair point. Like I bet if I went to like a straight up lumber, I got like a lumber store in our town that like a lot of the contractors use for um, projects that they're running. And I would imagine if I went there, it'd probably be a different story than going to the big box. And again, uh, I think the lumber thing is relatively normalized. I think what you're seeing a lot right now is a lot of in like the hardware side tools especially you know a lot of that stuff comes from taiwan like all the premium overseas tools i mean very little is made in america anymore right so taiwan's like the hub of overseas premium tools though like when you get past the chineseium stuff it's like throwaway and they've had just a heck of a time getting stuff landed and, and shipped um but i mean again the evidence would point to a good retail shopping fourth quarter right i mean we only have preliminary numbers but i think when the dust settles you'll see you know, e-commerce. I think supply chains, by and large, especially the parcel carriers, held on. They held on for dear life, but they held on. Um, so, yeah, I think they just bought a lot of fewer different items. I guess the question, though, is what I have a really hard time wrapping my head around is like, how many vessels did you say were off the coast right now? One hundred three. One hundred three. How many days did you say on average? Seventeen now. Yeah, seventeen and change. Supposed to normally, it's like two or three, right? Like two point somewhere in there. Yeah, probably days. a little bit longer, depending on like what part of the site, like when they cross. Yeah, let's just say five. So even if you sake of even if you just run that out, right, twenty days times a hundred vessels, right, that puts you well deep into twenty twenty two. And then if you look at like what we just talked about, all of the stores that have record low inventories or lower SKUs, right, maybe they've upped some of the inventory, but yep. they don't have the. I still find it hard to believe that like we're gonna make it through that with the the hose that is barely you know bringing the imports in right to the earlier part of what we were talking about like there's nowhere near the throughput bringing the products in we don't have enough inventory and even if interest rates go up which they are inevitably and consumer demand pulls back like there's still just not enough I feel like products to even meet normal, let alone excess demand. Like, do you do you think we'll be like mid-year before we start to see like the market flip? Where, yeah, my, my general caveat, even since Christmas, has been like pending total economic calamity, right? Something, yeah, exogenous that just throws us into a tailspin, like COVID, right? Right. <laughs> I mean, so the Wall Street Journal this morning, the, yeah. what I was referencing, I finally got the number on. Uh, 800 of the 8,000 Port of Los Angeles employees are currently out with COVID. So that's 10% of an already constricted throughput. So do I think by mid-year? Yeah. I I mean, look, I'm not an epidemiologist and this isn't a political statement. I think by mid-year, this country will have found a paradigm with which it can live with COVID. I think if not, there's going to be basically mutiny. (laughs) You know what I mean? We're not going to allow this to continue, right? When, when, 
sure when the option was like grandma died or we we stayed home that's that's a that's a reasonable trade-off when it's like i'm gonna have the sniffles or i'm gonna shut down the the largest economy in the history of humankind that becomes a harder trade-off i think to sell to the masses you have midterms coming up um so i think for a lot of reasons things will get back to becoming liquid and i wouldn't discount the degree to which throwing those like opening the country back for business in earnest will rectify some of these problems that we've seen. It won't happen all at once. Um, I don't think it'll even happen with like crazy amount of speed. We're talking about half a year here. But if we're sitting here at the 4th of July having the same conversation we're having now, we're still at 7% inflation. Interest rates aren't quelling the inflation and we have a real problem on our hands heading into the fall. Well, the reality of it is, is right? Like interest rates don't help why we have inflation, right? Interest rates only control monetary supply. And the reason we have inflation is because there is a bottleneck on the supply of the goods coming in, right? Interest rates just change somebody's ability and the demand side of it. So even if they do raise it. it, Look at it from a standpoint of um, an interest rate on a HELOC or a home mortgage that's going to directly impact the demand for building materials. I think that's where that part is going to affect it. But Ben, to your point, well, I mean, I yeah. again, this isn't the right word. You know, I'd rather talk about football. But at the end of the day, right, <laughs> interest rates are going to affect my marginal propensity to consume versus save. Right. So if all of a sudden yeah. interest rates went up to 20 percent, if you could walk down to your bank and put a, a, a million dollars in and get two hundred thousand dollars a year return, steady, risk free, you would change the way you do a lot of other things. Right. You would not spend as much money because the, the, the incentive to save- the Opportunity costs, yeah, so it's higher. But right now, I, I, I got a HELOC and I didn't even want it. They talked to me, like, they just like, hey, do you want do you want a HELOC? I refinanced, I'm like, sure. <laughs> and it, I could tap that at 1.9%. Like, why wouldn't I spend that money? I'd be an idiot not to spend that money. And like you mentioned, people are doing all of the things you would expect them to do with that money. People don't traditionally take HELOC funds and go on a vacation. Right, they they put a deck on, they buy a hot tub, they they shouldn't, but they buy a new car. I mean, they do things. Mm-hmm. They they buy durables typically with it, or they invest in their properties or their in their whatevers. So, you know, at the end of the day, if they, if they raise interest rates, what I meant by this, if they raise interest rates to try to quell inflation, and people are still spending, and we haven't even talked about the labor shortage, if they you still don't have people working, that is a major problem that could potentially be looming on the horizon. So let's talk about the labor shortage, because th- this has an impact on, you know, whether it's, I wouldn't say the, the brokerage side, but the, the the driver side, right? I mean, you're seeing uh, pretty much every truck that's going down the road, a lot of them are, they're advertising um, sign-on bonuses slapped onto the side of their truck, or on the back of the truck for people that are driving behind them. Um, you'll see it in driver recruitment and stuff like that. And it's not even just trucking, right? I mean, McDonald's is giving sign-on bonuses right now. It's, it's sure. insane. But the the labor shortage, I don't have the stats on it, but what, what does that look like from a high-level view? How short are we for personnel to work? So I think... I'm as hardcore free market capitalist as it comes, like get the government out of everything, whatever. So I, I'm gonna preface what I'm about to say with that. I think it's just as unfair to call it a labor shortage as it is to call it a wage shortage. Because well, McDonald's would not have trouble finding people if they paid twelve fifty an hour. And I don't think the economics work such that a Big Mac would rise to $6 per Big Mac, right? Huh. So, I agree. And I- I think the problem is, and the ATA has cautioned as much, we need to be careful because 
paying someone, you know, paying a kid in high school to work <clears throat> at McDonald's for twelve fifty as opposed to seven fifty, it's a hell of a lot different than wholesale raising driver wages for millions of drivers because that doesn't get clawed back. Those are full time positions. Those incremental variable costs are off, you know, being juxtaposed against major capital investments, right? So, Mr. McDonald's isn't sitting there thinking about capital investments on a scale against the variable cost of paying their employees more, right? They're, they're, it's a completely different model. So I think mm-hmm. we have to be careful as an industry how we think about the labor shortage short-term versus kind of the long-term macro driver shortage we've seen. So yeah, I mean, I think, look, everyone's come out with major driver pay increases. Forward Air, Schneider, Swift, uh, Midwest Express, US Express. I mean, they've all come out with these multiple, multiple uh, driver pay increases. Um, and it doesn't seem to be luring and the, the requisite amount of capacity into the industry. So, yeah, I saw a stat. Um, I, I, this might have been like a Freight Waves article or something, but it said like the amount of new um, small trucking companies that popped up and new authorities that were that were issued by FMCSA was like record number. But what they found was that it didn't really change capacity because drivers were leaving these larger fleets to go run their own shop basically because they wanted a bigger piece of the pie because they're chasing all these the, the big profits that are out there and i'm curious if that will if that will turn around when when those profits start to regulate oh it will no doubt about it i think some of it will persist i mean i think inflation i think everything that's happened has probably put like a what you call like an inflationary shelf right I mean, so what we saw was like in 18 if you tracked it and you looked at all the graphs market went nuts it came back down right to where it was. 2019 was a really, really slow yep. year. I mean, you didn't, the game, market didn't gain much ground. Don't think that's going to happen here, mainly because of the driver pay increases. Those, by and large, don't get clawed back. A lot of big fleets mitigated their problems in 18 with short-term bonuses and retention and all that stuff. They didn't offer huge pay increases. So, yeah, I mean, I think things could come down. That's absolutely true. I mean, we've seen a record number of motor carrier number registrations almost entirely small fleets like the numbers are shocking how tilted it is to small fleets but you know again shippers are going to do everything they are doing everything in their power to lure capacity back to the contract market everything they can possibly do they are they are breaking all of the cardinal rules right they're 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 agreeing to double digit rate increases they're maybe relaxing their service standards a little bit they're maybe adding two or three brokers to their routing guide as opposed to like the traditional five plus one or four plus one paradigm that always existed because they don't want to go through another year with this exposure to the spot market. That's a really, really good point. And we never, so Ben, you and I have never really taken a look at the contract side of things to that extent with how customers have changed their approach on it. So that's interesting to hear. I didn't, I didn't know, um, I guess that let me about. let me ask you something about that, Ken. So, like, you know, you have these larger carriers that have these now. They basically build in these additional costs that, like, to your point, aren't necessarily or probably aren't going to get clawed back. So, their fixed costs have gone up to some degree. The driver pay is that going to put you think a floor on where the rates could fall back down to? Because there's only a certain amount that they're going to be willing to be able to run these for now that they have a larger driver pay expense if they want to still hit the you know quarterly numbers that they're predicting. No, absolutely. That's what I meant by that inflationary shelf. I think that will that will 
reduce the level to which I think rates can fall. I don't think we'll see like 2019 levels on the on the tail end of this cyclic, right? So if you think of it as like a sine curve, right, that bouncy, I don't think we'll dip down as far as 19 for the reason you just stated. There's some others, but I don't think we'll go down that low. Um, the interesting thing, of it, let's just take a truck with a hundred, uh, a fleet with a hundred trucks. There's this fallacy that it's all or nothing, right? That the, the, all of this capacity is either going to these really small carriers that run in the spot market or these really big carriers that run in the contract market. The reality of it is the needle has been shifted most by you take a hundred truck fleet that typically ran 10 trucks in the spot market and 90 in the contract market. And they never ran, like, again, let's just, this is just a fun example. Yeah. This isn't like, well, what's happened and the numbers pan this out is since this disruption, we've seen 75 trucks running contract and 25 running spot. And sure, those 75 that are running contract have gotten modest increases, let's just say 10, 12%. But those ones that are running spot have gotten 80 to 100% price increase. Oh, huge. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's, it's not just the small carriers that have benefited from this. So they're subsidizing a lot of these higher pay for their whole fleet by this chunk of spot that's been exposed to these high rates. So I think what they're going to do is and what they're trying to do is get it such that because they want to they want to go back to that 90 10 they want to go back to that 85 15 where they have the only real spot predictable is when they're out of they had a load cancel or they're out of position or whatever so the way that they're going to do that is they're going to go lock in higher contract prices they're in turn going to make sure they have butts and seats by offering higher higher wage and uh sign-on bonuses and then hopefully get back to that stage where they're at 90 90 10 operating at seven seven percent operating margin. You're, you're right because why do they go to the spot in the first place i mean you're seeing rejection rates at like whatever 27 30 percent i'd seen you know throughout the year like it means you know like one in three loads they're giving back well why would you give a load back because you're getting paid more to go grab a load off the load board so if you yeah. bring the contract loads price up right the difference between the risk of you dropping the contract at the commitment and grabbing a load off the board is going to get closer the higher those contract rates, the less likely you are to jump over to the spot market, which I mean, I think should create a lot of opportunities for brokers as well. Well, I guess it all depends on the cost, right? I mean, if you've got contract rates going up, as long as you can get a truck underneath it, you might be some opportunities for brokers to get into some dedicated lanes where usually they never might necessarily had that. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And, and look, the, 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 the elastic bands pulled tight. I mean, you could lock into contracts pretty comfortably now, right? and expect rates to maybe trim back towards the tail half of the year and you could be sitting in an advantageous profit position, right? So this is not a very scary time. It's always scarier as a pricing person at a brokerage to be pricing when the market's at a bottom than when it's at a top. Yep. Right? Oh, yeah, no so I mean, hey. Because the market went down 20%. They've only gotten fired because the market went up 20%. <laughs> so some actionable stuff for listeners out there, right? If you're bidding out prices and you're bidding out contract stuff for the year, if the outlook is that it's likely the market is not gonna go above where it is and it's more likely to go down, if you lock these in for the 12 months, you are at the very least more likely to be getting a bargain later in the year when rates go down as opposed to losing money when you're at the bottom. And the yep. market, and what he's referring to obviously is what you're gonna pay for that truck. What are you gonna pay to cover that load, right? Yep. If we're at the peak now, getting into some dedicated lanes for the year might not be a bad idea. Yeah. Well, good stuff. We got a, we got a couple questions we got to get to, and we can um, we can wrap up the the market conversation um, 
briefly one more time before we wrap up today but uh two questions here but first we got to give a shout out to our friends over at lean solutions group speaking of the the employment shortage um as brokers are trying to grow if you're looking for bodies to put in seats whether it's a dispatcher a sales rep account manager back office you name it check out lean they've got the nearshore staffing model with offices down in south america you can get multiple employees for the cost of what one would cost the United States. So check them out at leangroup.com. We will get Trey Griggs back on here in a future episode to tell us about their awesome growth and hopefully for me to tell him how glad I am that the Bills took down the Chiefs or that the Steelers did before. So anyway, our first question um, comes from one of our listeners. He, he I'll, I'll simplify the question. It basically is, how should I approach a prospect that relies heavily on a large asset-based brokerage as my competition? So basically the situation was, uh, and Ben, correct me if I'm mis, mis uh, interpreting this. He asked, he's got a prospect that in their email signature is literally referencing another brokerage, right? That they're relying on, that they're very um, heavily reliant on for capacity. Um, so saying, how should I approach a situation when I know that a, a big chunk of their business goes to somebody else? Um, well, the way I look at it is if, if 90% of their freight goes to one company or goes to 10 other competitors of yours. It's the same thing. You still are, you're still trying to sell your, your value add on that, that available amount of their freight that you can have an impact on. What is your, what's your take on that in any more specific detail? Similar, right? The situation is they're already going to be using anybody anyway. But the reality yeah. of the market that we talked about in this episode is no matter who they're using, they have contracted loads that aren't getting picked up. That's, a fact regardless, right? So there are opportunities there. I would say the first thing not to do is to not try to compete with them and say, you know, we can be everything, we can compete and provide the exact same thing that you are with a relationship you have, right? What I would do is try to frame the prospect and call around, hey, what's going well with your relationship with these larger carriers? What's going well with this relationship with this brokerage, whoever it is, right? Because you wanna be able to find what your advantage is. And there are a lot of advantages that you have as a smaller brokerage competing with a large brokerage or even a large asset-based company, right? You're more nimble, you're more flexible, you've got the ability to go run at things. You're way less likely to give a load back just because you're not taking as many as the larger companies, right? So being able to move that conversation to really where you could provide benefits that they aren't getting those from the larger companies, right? Larger. Yeah always going to have some pros and cons and i think there's the there's the people aspect of it that people often forget about they're like oh my god this they're working with so and so that's a huge company i'm nothing compared to that it's like at the end of the day right your your ability as a human being to connect with them and form a relationship and rapport with that traffic manager or whoever's tendering loads out that's going to mean a, a lot more to that relationship than the size and number of employees of your competition that's also working with them. Because at the end of the day, you, you might be the more preferable person that they wanna spend their time doing business with because they like working with you and you're more responsive, you're just, you, you click better. So there's always that, um, that aspect to it. Um, the second question here is about leaving negative reviews. So specifically they asked, when should I leave a freight guard report on carrier 411? Um, but we can expand this out. So freight guard reports on 411, um, TIA watchdog reports for the TIA's um, users. It could be a negative review on DAT or on Google or Facebook, wherever, right? When should you leave a bad review? Um, it's a it's a pretty subjective thing. I think if you were done wrong by a carrier, there you're 
you're doing a disservice to the rest of the brokers if you don't share that information and make it available. Um, what you should also do though is share positive information about carriers. So what I always recommend to somebody is if they're gonna leave a negative review on a carrier, go find another carrier or two or three that you've used and go leave a positive review for them and, and share your experience. So um, it's more of a psychological thing of just trying to have positivity in your workday and all that good stuff. But um, I would definitely leave a, an accurate review. Don't embellish it. Don't make it worse than it actually was. But there's some there's some bad eggs out there. There's bad brokers. There's bad shippers. There's bad carriers. There's bad warehouses. There's bad everything, right? Um, and getting that information out there, I think, is very important to do. So a specific example, if someone cobra or double brokers and they did it intentionally and you know it screwed you over, or if they lied to you about having proper insurance or not having an exclusion for a certain commodity on their insurance and they got you screwed over, you need to report that stuff, right? That's, that's a bad practice. What do you got on this one, Ben? Honestly, this is kind of new for me. I've never run into this. So that was new information. I haven't experienced this or ran into it. Fair enough. Ken, are you more apt to leave a positive or a negative review on like Yelp or Google or anything like that? This just came up yesterday. Um, I don't leave a review for anything unless it's like a 10 out of five experience, right? Like that required special call out because I think, especially in this environment, I cut people like a ton of slack, right? Mm -hmm. I, mean, I realize I'm bringing three children under the age of six into a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> and it's going to be a mess. So if our food takes There's a little gonna while. There's going to be french fries and crayons on the ground when we yeah. leave. And I get fish instead of chicken. I'll just eat it because I know that, like, everyone needs a little break. So I don't, I'm not a reviewer by any stretch of the imagination. Fair enough. Fair enough. The reason I ask is I, I think the typical person's more apt to leave a negative review after a bad experience than a positive after a good one. But in brokerage, there are... I've seen so many carriers that have left negative reviews on brokers when when you actually peel back the layers, the broker wasn't in the wrong, the carrier was the one that was in the wrong, right? And they'll go on there and they'll, they'll mother F this, that and the other thing and they promised me this and that and then you, you find out that, oh, that carrier was late, they lied about um, what day they were gonna be available, they they lied about the rate they agreed on and then tried to hold the load hostage, like all this stuff pops up. So. Reviews can be a dangerous thing. I would just caution you in general, whether it's a brokerage or a carrier, uh, there's two sides to every story. So don't take them at face value and think that that is just uh, gold. So that's my take on that. Um, good general good, good life questions. advice, I think. What's that? It's good general life advice. Yeah, <laughs> you're absolutely right. Um, you guys got any, any final discussion on the market? Actually, Ken, I'm curious. What is it going to look like a year from now? If you had to just guess, or are we just throwing darts at a board blind right now? I think we'll exit the year. I got to go back. I'm on, we did like a Nostradamus episode at the end of the year of our show. And I, I think I was at like 15 to 20% spot rates now by the end of the year. Year over really? year. Which I think is a safe way to sound dramatic yeah. because you're coming down off of like historic highs, right? It's going to be. Yeah, it's going to be darn well, near It probably went up like 30%, right? And if it drops back down 15, it's yeah. not that crazy. Right. So I think that's probably where we'll sit is down 15 to 20% on the drive-in spot side and probably up 7 to 12% on the contract side would be my my betting line. Do you I think there's going to be some like calling of the market of the, these companies that are like, I mean, all these drivers that went to go start their own company when it actually comes, I mean, it's easy to run your own company when you can charge whatever you want, right? And your expenses 
aren't keeping yeah, up I mean, with revenue, always right? Is. I mean, 2019, the, the, when, when they were still really reporting the truckload, truck, trucking company bankruptcies, it was through the roof. Yeah, massive and that's numbers. how big fleets get used trucks cheap. I mean, the cycle will repeat itself. Honestly, though, I, I genuinely, I'll leave you with this. I, I do think, or at least I hope, one systemic change from this will be more of a more of a niche for smaller fleets to be successful out there. Hope so. Well, I, don't think I this do is a wanna... business where you should have to operate on your shoestrings and face the threat systemically of going out of business every 18 months. Agreed, especially with the quality of life you have as a driver, I think there should be kind of a premium to it. I'm curious though, I mean, I don't wanna go super into this with the time we have left, but what are your thoughts on the uh, legislation coming out of going to the Supreme Court in regards to where this falls? What, do you, what are your just opinions on it? I mean, the, the numbers worry me, right? So I think I gotta pull this, uh, Dean did the research at 51, I think percent, it's either, well, regardless, about half drivers are unvaccinated. Mm-hmm. And that was, it was, it was from lat, late last year, so that may have ticked up. And when ELDs happened, the best estimate was 10 to 12% hours were removed from the market rather instantaneously. And that we mm-hmm. all know we lived through what that cost. Yeah. So imagine if we took out another 15 to 20% instantaneously. Um, Yikes. When is it supposed so, to be heard? It's been the heard. Case. They're sitting on it. They don't have to do anything, right? If they don't do anything, as far as I understand it, the, the mandate's in. Yep. Um, I think what they're hearing is whether or not to strike down or just put an injunction in place against, or maybe I have that reversed. But either way, there's been, as of this morning, I checked, they have not heard, and there's some rumblings that the fact that they haven't heard is probably bad for the cause of people hoping to get it overturned. I mean, again, we can go into huge detail here. There's a big issue of government flowdowns, right? So it's really important. It's not just the private sector, which I think is test or VAX. The government itself said VAX. And if you haul any government freight or you work with a broker or shipper that has any government contract, they could be in potential violation of that if they have any flowdown whatsoever. Um, so you have to be very, yeah. very mindful. Huh. I never thought about the driver side. I, I know obviously that, you know, if you have a government contract, they had the mandate, but I never thought about like these brokers and these carriers that haul for SDC or they do FEMA business or anything that touches a government contract. I never thought about that. It's interesting. I don't, I don't mean, know how you monitor so that. This, right? It's not just the obvious things, right? The DOD, you know, um, all that kind of stuff. Think about like the GSA touches everything. So I was just yeah. gonna say the GSA is way bigger in some people aspects. People don't realize like, that like the toilet paper. Not to go back to toilet paper. Maybe yes. it's a fitting note to end on. But like they may be supplying toilet paper to government office buildings, and they have a government contract, and they have somewhere in that contract that they have to flow down all pertinent government regulations to their vendors. And you, as a carrier or you as a broker, are a vendor, so you're on the hook. Now, do they choose That's, to enforce it? I think the bigger the company, the more risk they have, so they have to protect themselves. But yeah, I think it's going to be a mess. Anything, I mean, yeah. again, anything the government gets involved in with is bound to be yeah. a mess of some sort. <laughs> I think that's Love my it. overall, that's my one transcending theme throughout every podcast, no matter the year, no matter the format. <laughs> if the government's involved, <laughs> there's a high likelihood that something's going to go awry. That's, yeah, you're not wrong. Well, good stuff. So, um, Ken, awesome to have you back here. Well, I'd like to get you back on the show later this year, um, yeah. and we'll, we'll see we'll see how things look then. Um, you got any closing remarks or comments for the audience, Ken? 
no thanks for having me on yeah let's not make it 13 months um go Steelers go Bills I yeah. guess good luck good luck to the Steelers I'll be rooting for them this weekend awesome. all right take care guys thanks for having me ben, on Ben final thoughts whether you believe you can or believe you can't you're right and until next week go Bills and Steelers I guess later <laughs>